I'm Esther Alma. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm coming to you live from Accra, Ghana. We are on air internationally across the United States, right here in Ghana and in London. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. July 31st is African Women's Day. It was named by the African Union back in 1962 at the very first Pan-African Women's Congress in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. The idea was that this day would be designated to focus, celebrate, and engage with African women. Not enough people really know about it. It is rarely fully honored and engaged. So, right here on The Spin, we will be using July, not just the day, because we're extra, so we're using the whole month, to engage, discuss, celebrate, honor, and hold tough discussions on a range of issues centering African women. We are calling it our Living Legacy Series. We're talking with and hearing from daughters of the diaspora and those born and raised on the continent. They are sharing how they are reimagining success, reimagining leadership, making fresh moves and taking action on social justice, policy, tourism, health and many more issues. We'll be hearing from women who moved nations, left careers, marriages, are building movements. We'll hear from women who chose new nations and new notions of success. And they were calling on all of us to reimagine our possibilities and opportunities for success, progress, and thriving economies. Society tells women what success looks like and how it should make us feel. On Living Legacy, African women will talk about the risk and the reward, the toll on their health, the challenge and the change they chose and choose. They come from the worlds of law and yoga, governance and sexual violence, art and activism, culture and tourism. All of that coming up. And for this 2018 African Women's Day, we'll hear from women in Ghana, the first African nation to get independence back in 1957. Our living legacy guest this week is Nana Amwako Anin. A high flyer in New York, working as a prosecutor in the New York Attorney General's office, and then moving to a fat check-paying gig on Wall Street's financial powerhouse. And yet, Nana made a move, a big move, to right here in Accra, Ghana, from New York, the Big Apple. She left all of that to become founder of Bliss Yoga and the executive director of Touch a Life. She lives in Ghana with her husband and daughter. So... Welcome, Nana. Thank you. So we're sitting here in Accra, in the Laboni studios in the BBC. This, though, is the result of a big, big move. And that big move came as the result of really the, the impact of what many would say dream jobs, dream gigs in New York City. So tell me about what you were doing and also the kind of toll it was taking on your life and on your health? 
I had lived in New York City after graduating from Columbia University for about 15 years off and on. And after graduating from law school and doing some work in the D.C. area, moved to New York and actually was taken on by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in New York. And I was a trial lawyer. Uh, it was a You're job. A trial lawyer. Yes, it was a job that every young lawyer would want to covet. You know, they get like three or four thousand applications. They hire a class of seventy people. You go through like ten different rounds of interviews. You you end up where you are. So it's sort of that dream job. So I, I hit the ground running and started my work with that office doing a lot of trials. As a junior trial lawyer, you get to do the hard stuff, you right. know, the night courts, the arraignments where you're arraigning like murder and rape cases. You're recommending charges on life sentences, on big time numbers. And you're also working from like 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. in the complaint room. And it sounds really exciting. It's what you see on Law and & Order. For real. And That's the only reference. <laughs> Exactly. Lower order. It's exactly that. I had a, a, a clothing rack in my office with suits on it, and I would literally sleep there and transform for trials. So it, it, it's a great, fantastic story, but it took a toll. Right. And talk about the kind of toll it took, because literally the, the life that you describe is the life that we see on TV, which comes with a profile and paychecks and the kind of thing that people define as success. And so what kind of toll did it take? Well, if you think about the life of a public lawyer who's serving the community, either as a prosecutor, as I was, or a defense attorney, you're working with people and you're actually working with the outcomes for people. So you have a case on trial, you have a case that you're recommending charges and you give somebody 15 years, that person could be 19 years old and has a family. And for somebody like myself, who is of Ghanaian origin, who is African and also living amongst the African-American community in New York City, majority of cases are brought on and are charged against minorities. So for me as a young DA with a class of 70, where there are only four people of color on our class roster, it took a toll because I had to look at myself and then also look at the community I was serving and sometimes questioning, maybe underserving. So the stress was there. Making those decisions, cold call on a night court, complaint room moment. What do you do? How is it going to affect the life of somebody else? And it does have a big effect. Mm. I can only imagine. And I mean, even the way in which you approach it speaks to what you would ultimately end up doing. But what kind of specific changes did you see for your health, actually, taking all of that into consideration and then just the sheer pressure of the actual work? I came from a you know law school environment and then working as well long hours. And in a DA's job or any any public interest job, any public court job, you work, you know, many, many hours. You also have visuals of things. I worked with domestic violence victims and child endangerment victims. And I would photograph the victims, my DVs that would come in at like 2 or 3 a.m. I'd have a photographer there or myself taking a Polaroid of injuries. I would also interrogate the defendant who would probably come in fresh from the crime, so he would also be bloodied or have uh, visuals that were pretty traumatic. He'd be angry, she'd be angry, gender-based crime. And um, so it, what happened was the effect was memory issues, was nightmares, was, you know, waking up at night with 
scenes was also not being able to eat well because you're so on the go that you don't have that time to really think about healthy choices. And so there was weight loss. So all those things make you weak and tired. And how can you really be productive and well when you're constantly working, you know, 365 days a year? A DA doesn't really get vacation because in New York City or any global city, crime is happening all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's where the, the wellness quotient was off. There was an imbalance. So what did you do then to take care of your health? Was yoga something that came afterwards? Was it always something that was in your life? I've been practicing yoga for about 25 years. So since university or prior to university in New York City. And I've always incorporated it into my lifestyle. So it's something that a lot of people say that, you know, you hang it up on a rack and you use it for a while, then you you take it down. I think that people have to show themselves that wellness is a part of your living. It should be incorporated in your flow forever. And so it'd been something that was very helpful to me. But when I get to that point in my career, it became a lifeline. I spent many hours in the yoga studios and various studios in New York City being able to shut down, turn off my cell phone, align, and maybe try and do some de-visualization around what is my actually current day like. It's not just that snapshot. It's more about finding some peace and some tranquility and some actually having a personal hour to yourself as a young professional woman. So what's the point at which you shift from trial lawyer to Wall Street fat cat? So I spent some time on the beat, the trial beat, and we have about 400 cases a year. So imagine lots of answering ready for trials, lots of disappointments. I had some victims get seriously injured by the defendants who were still part of their lives. And before I left the office, I had one of my victims be seriously attacked, a DV victim, a domestic violence victim by her husband. And I think at that point, also when I started to second seat a murder trial, which I felt was interesting as far as the way the police had served that case, and I just had a lot of questions about how my career would flow, I decided to take a break and move on. So I went on to Wall Street and I worked for a Wall Street firm as an auditor, compliance officer. I worked in general counsel. And I changed over and I thought this was a great move. And it was. It was exciting and they were excited to have me. But it changed in the sense that I worked even harder, right? You come from the mental stresses of changing people's lives with trial. Then you come on to the hour racket where Wall Street firms, you know, you're working like 100 or 150 hours a week. You have like two Blackberries. You're communicating with Hong Kong at like 2 a.m. You're working remotely. Your weekends aren't really weekends. You're going into the office. And so that was fantastic, really exciting. You got to use that, the real life instinct to be able to slow down because that work wasn't as human, you know, but you, you also work really hard. And so you've done trial law and then you go to Wall Street. Over how many years was that all together? That was about five years, span of five or six years. Wow, five or six years. So what's the point at which you say, OK, I'm done? I've just got to stop. The point in once you say you're done is that, you know, we've lived, both of us have lived, Esther, you've lived in New York City. It's so beautiful. It's so exciting for a young woman. Then you think about myself as a young woman who then got married and had a child. And I think that when we had our daughter, as a young professional, you start to question how much time do you really have? And when you're, you're taking your daughter to a daycare center down the street from your fantastic apartment, but you're picking her, dropping her off at 7.30 in the morning and picking her up at 7 p.m., and she's basically inside with other people for weeks and months at a very precarious young age. She started daycare at four months. 
then you start to think about, is this time like balancing out for all? And that's when I decided it was time to make a change and maybe a move. Just move on up toward your destination. listening to Living Legacy. It's a series on the spin and our special guest is Nana Amwako Anin. We heard about this big life in the Big Apple. Now we're going to move on to really what is the manifestation of reimagining success. And that meant coming home to Ghana, coming home to Accra to live. That means earning differently, living differently, challenges to adapt. What, what's your relationship to Ghana? How is that going to shift? What does it mean to build a wellness practice that is conscious, community, but also commerce? And what kinds of challenges do you have? So let's talk about first the actual physical move to Ghana and what went into that and the challenge and the choice and the beauty of being home and what that meant. I think when you have a setup that you, as young women and individuals who are professionals, who are living well and doing well, especially in New York City, when you have that grand setup and you just decide to stop. I still remember one of my friends from this firm I worked on Wall Street when I told her I was leaving. She said, well, you're just going to leave, go cross global and start over. And that really resonated with me. That's really what it takes. That's really the mindset that a lot of people have to come to peace with. And so my husband and I decided that we were, were going to make that change, one for our daughter, and one because we felt that that mill that we were on, we could find a different tune-up. So it takes a lot of different like mental spaces to live in. But the concept of starting over was one. It took a lot of planning. We actually started our plan, and we moved three years officially together. After three years, we finally made that move. We had to think about logistics. We had to think about finishing our house that we were building in Accra. We had to think about where our daughter was going to go to school. We had to think about incomes and jobs and how to make that buffer happen and if we wanted to take a step back when we arrived. So you have to be something who's very flexible and maybe that's where the yoga and the breathing comes in. <laughs> and then you, Literal and physical <laughs> flexibility. You have to think about your family you know, who is, I've, I'm from Ghana originally. I have two parents who have raised me incredibly with my two sisters in the D.C. area. I lived in Zambia as a young child for four years before relocating to the U.S., but being born in the U.S. and coming back, they set us up for life in America or Europe. That was their vision. And so when you have to come to that term where you switch that that story, a lot of people around you, you also need to also help them along right. and help them process what that's going to mean for you and them. There is this notion that to move home is somehow a failure when you have had the opportunity to enjoy what is defined as the pinnacle of success, which for me, when you think about that, is that's one of the most geographical legacies of colonialism. The idea that to be in the land where your foremothers and your forefathers and your immediate family are from, that to move back is considered a failure as opposed to even a change and a negation of something that you have created in the West. What's your perspective on that? That's true. You said the word leaving, starting over the notion of failure when you have built this storyline that looks 
perfect. But underneath sometimes those perfect storylines from a wellness perspective, is that really well? Are you really well? And so coming to grips with that, yes, arriving or leaving. I still remember we got on the plane saying, well, this is a big move. You know, this is a big risk. We don't really know how happy we'll be. We don't know if that decision to be in a warmer climate or in a back home element will work. But I don't look at it as a failure. I think that most people actually are not awakening their aliveness. So they're not making decisions that are actually about forwarding their lives. And many of us, we work that nine to seven job. You know, we have that house in New Jersey or we have those two cars and it's beautiful. But are we really thinking about what we really internally want? We sort of ghost that or gray that out with this looks good. This is a lot of money. This is working well. But what actually in your own internals, what do you really want? And so I asked myself the question, what do I really want? And that's what drove me. So I looked at this as a triumph. But again, there's a lot of convincing that you have to do with yourself. And not a lot of people make that journey. I lived in New York for seven years. And I definitely remember my first year here. I had to challenge my own notions of being an adventurer and reimagining success having lived and worked in different countries, actually, but choosing to come back to Ghana and live, something that that I had always said I wanted to do as a working journalist. But my first year, I really had to challenge what I thought was a negation of what I had created in New York, even though real talk in New York, when I lived, I was always a paycheck away from eviction. I was always a paycheck away from being broke. And out of doors. I struggled a lot in my last year in particular. It was a really, really difficult year. And yet coming back to a certain level of security was challenging my understanding and my notion of, of what success was. And I was like, wow, look how ingrained our colonized legacies are without even knowing that. So what felt the most special about coming home to Ghana for you? Like, I don't believe in comparing cities. I think every city is magical and challenging for its own reasons, and it should be allowed to be that. But what was especially beautiful for you coming home? So what was really special about moving back to Ghana, it reverts back to sort of the reflection of my father. And every young man and woman has a story about the influence their fathers have on them. My father has spent the majority of his career as a champion for Africa and development, working on ethics and health and governance for the continent. And so given that he had put a stamp on this wonderful place, when I came to Ghana, I felt that I was really home and I was living maybe his story and my story as well. The one thing that also made it very special is that I was able to see that my daughter will have a longer run. She'll have a longer run than I did here. She has her youth here. She's going to have a longer period of that, that transformation and inspiration. And I think that's a huge gift that anybody can give their child. So that's really special to me. And so then talk to me about this transition. I mean, you are literally living reimagining success and bringing yoga into this particular space. But you also do work with children, children who've been trafficked. And I wonder if you can talk a bit about that work. You're the executive director of Touch a Life and the idea of bringing a wellness and a peacefulness to these young bodies that have been exploited for commerce and what it means to reimagine a young body as a space of wellness and strength and what you're doing with Touch a Life to, to build that. Touch a Life is 
a very special foundation that has been operating since about 2006 when Pam Cope, who is based in the U.S., suffered from a loss in her family. And with inspired and reading about Ghana and this issue of young child laboring in Ghana, came to Ghana after seeing a New York Times article and came to Ghana, West Africa, Volta Lake, where young children are being trafficked to work for the fishermen there. The organization has worked tirelessly to rescue children using all means necessary, and but particularly with the Guinean Department of Social Services and Social Welfare, and has rescued 100 children. Their operations are campus where we house 100 children is in Kumasi, and it is a rehabilitative care center for children who can't be reunited with their families. Instead of pushing them out into maybe environments that aren't healthy for them, we bring them and we, we, we hold them and we restore them, renew them. When you talk about re-envisioning wellness and the young child's body. I came to this organization as a yoga teacher, as somebody who would volunteer her time to teach them about how the body can be strong, how we can protect our our energy, how we can use movement to be free and happy and visualize a new life. And so I think that it's really important to understand that yoga can be a, a way of allowing somebody to understand that their body is connected to their mind and maybe that mental trauma can then be massaged and 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 also the future can be re-envisioned through movement. So it's been a really fantastic opportunity to see how we've grown them, to see how the body isn't your enemy and the body can be a very safe space. That's particularly powerful because we sit in a space and we are people whose bodies were used in so many ways that went against what was either pleasure or power for ourselves, but were used to literally build other nation. We've been colonized. There's been apartheid. There's been enslavement. We still have human trafficking. And so the idea of of seeing yoga as this space that reimagines trauma and actually turns the body into itself and creates a healing is particularly powerful. So let's talk yoga. It's your business. It's also your wellness practice. You explained that it was a lifeline when you were a trial lawyer, really dealing with incredibly challenging and painful realities. Now, yoga is a group of physical, mental and spiritual practices or disciplines that originated in ancient India. And here in Africa, frankly, we associate yoga with rich white people and usually mostly women. And here you are, this tall, chocolate-skinned, natural-haired, Ghanaian-American woman coming into a space where I think also our colonized legacy makes this belong to another people. So talk about your culturalization of yoga, which is really what I see you're, you're doing with it here. I think that's a really important conversation and dialogue to have about sort of the identity of a business that actually is associated, yoga is associated with luxury all over the world. That's the profile. And generally, the, the people that this practice does attract are people who have money. And the profile and definition of people who have money is assumed to be people who are likely white, right? White and in the yoga practice, women, white women. 
I think that it's it's been great for me to be here coming back to Ghana along with a lot of other Ghanaian American or as, we, as you would maybe frame me up entrepreneurs who were changing the vision of what that means. It's interesting being a, somebody who owns a studio of this nature because a lot of people do assume when I first opened that I particularly possibly even listening to me on the radio maybe a white woman. And that's an interesting dialogue to have, right? right. But when they do come on um, to the platform or to the studio or when I'm talking in public, it's a nice, wonderful moment because is it a surprise for some people? Yes. Is it a welcome surprise for many people? Yes. And I think that's a trend we need to continue to confront. Luxury for Africa is no longer, I believe, a white framework. And I think what you said, Esther, about this history of colonialism and this history of us being sort of taken is prominent in our story. But currently, if we look at the business dynamics, there was a report published, there are more African women on the continent particularly doing business. And so I am that example. And I think that it's a refreshing change for for my business. We've attracted a very diverse beautiful community of all ages of religions faith we have a, a wonderful blooming diverse community and that's because of the person who is ambassadoring this moment and that's me i love that in so many different ways luxury as an idea which is actually bizarre because to associate luxury with wellness is to also then kind of default into the frame of the continent of Africa is poverty, and that's why the two things are not associated, all of which is deeply problematic in so many ways. It is also false. And I think living legacy is about being the walking example of not something different, because it always was. It's just that we have had narratives that have simply overlooked, dismissed, ignored, or named this as undoable, untrue, and therefore unseeable. And so part of how Living Legacy reimagines success is to welcome the visualization of women doing things in the world that reflect an African concept, which is wellness. The manifestation of that wellness, in your case, is yoga. But it has always been, and it's always manifest. Motion and movement has always been part of how we as a people have done wellness. We understand that, and it's part of our holistic practice. We have always done mind, body, spirit. We understand that. That is also part of our wellness practice. So talk to me about how yoga serves your balance in a city that can be trying. <laughs> that has its challenges, as all cities do, and what that practice does for you. The beauty of being in Accra is we are bursting now with new ideas, with new business, with a new economy, with a new administration, and the day-to-day -day movements of people who work. I consider this a beautiful chaos, right? Mm. Where you are I love that. constantly confronted by... There's a big truck in front of me that just stopped and I'm on my way and there's a traffic jam that's unexpected. And the triggers for stress, I believe, are more intense than a city like New York City because you're constantly having to react. You're constantly having to make shifts instinctually 
all the time. And so I think that actually yoga for, for a, from a wellness perspective for Africa, for West Africa, for Ghana is a beautiful introduction. It's a beautiful conversation. It's wonderful that we're seeing hundreds of people wanting to practice, wanting to do, because they're trying to find a place where they can just say, I'm home and it's quiet, right? So that's what I call it. It's like a reaction to the beautiful chaos. It holds a space, I think, in this in this town that will continue for a very long time because we're filling a gap that people really need. And closing thought, Nana Amwako Anin, founder of Bliss Yoga Accra, executive director of Touch a Life, former trial lawyer of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, former Wall Street banker, dweller in the Big Apple, who now calls Accra home. How do you define success now, given those realities? I think the definition of success is to understand that you have a story, that everybody has something that is brilliant as as potentially a career. But we have to start to think deeper about our personal strength. Are you strong in what you do? Are you well in what you do? Are you happy in what you do? And I think most people would answer no when we think about the way the lifelines go. So as a new visionary of what wellness should look like for Africa, I can say yes. I am well at what I do. I am happy at what I do. That's a huge statement for young women, for families, for children, and for Touch a Life, the foundation. We are encouraging the world to understand that there is the idea that you can rescue, you can restore, and you can renew. And if holistic practice of yoga is part of that, we are changing many lives. listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women of colour podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armour, and this is our Living Legacy series. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live here in the BBC studios in Laboni, Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, New York, Georgia, Iowa and Massachusetts. We are on air right here in Ghana and in London on ABN Radio UK. We're also a podcast. You can subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. One mic, one hour, global black women. We keep it fly. We honor the smart because smart is sexy. And sometimes our bliss is our badass belief that we can honor our traditions, break the rules, reimagine success, and make our world better. living legacy guest is Mami Ajay. Born in Ghana, she moved to the UK when she was just one years old, then back to Ghana when she was five. Lived here in Ghana for 10 years, then back to the UK. Then it was off to Philadelphia in the States for college, where she actually stayed for the next 13 years before coming back to Ghana to live, to work and to thrive. 
Mame is a producer, an actress, a cultural creator. She's a Ghanaian woman, the creator and producer of Girl Going Places, a web show. She was actually a furniture designer. She lived in the States, as we said, and she's one of the leading actresses in the award-winning web series An African City, a series about five African women who return to Ghana seeking love, having sex, and making a way back home. Mami plays Zainab, an entrepreneur who produces and exports shea butter, a Ghanaian precious resource. Welcome, welcome, Mami Ajay. Thank you, Esther. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so grateful that you're here. So we want to really start with exploring coming back home. Mm. Your journey to creativity essentially was via psychology, healthcare, finance, repurposing furniture, into then acting and producer. Coming back home for you was what and why? Coming back home for me, I, I always tell people, was really sort of divine intervention mixed with a spiritual movement within myself because... Before I moved back to Ghana, I had fear about so many things, you know, to even make the smallest decision was very difficult for me. But moving to Ghana has been the one decision that I had no fear about at all. I was in Ghana September 2012 for a family funeral and I was here for two weeks. And by the time I was leaving, I knew that I was moving back. I had made that decision. And by December 1st of that same year, I was back. No hesitation. I quit my job. I just bought a house that I rented out. I packed everything, my car, everything I owned. So moving to Ghana for me was just, you know, those moments when you're told to listen to your instincts and listen to the divine within you. That's what it was because I had no idea what sort of laid in front of me. I had been out of Ghana for about 15, 16 years at that point. So moving back really was, I know now what I was supposed to do, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I haven't regretted a minute of it since. Love that. What a beautiful way to move, this idea of listening to our instincts and making big journeys yeah. that create dis- big discoveries are really powerful. Mm-hmm. And so coming home, traveling to Ghana is framed in multiple ways. Mm. You're born in Ghana in the first place, so you're coming home. Yeah. But this notion of travel, and how we travel. We have this thing that we call tourism, mm. which is about the notion of how you visit mm. different and separate spaces. Mm. But really, you've created this web show called Girl Going Places yeah. that's really inviting all of us to reimagine tourism yeah. and reimagine what it means to move around right. our own nation, starting with Ghana. So talk to me about how the idea even came about and what you were trying to do. That first year I was in Ghana, you know, when I first got here, I was initially looking for work within my field. And which was healthcare which finance, was healthcare right? finance Compl- nothing created long way, away. long way away and at some point during the interview a couple of interviews I went on I decided that actually it was just an epiphany that actually healthcare finance isn't my passion it's something that I kind of fell into and if I've made this move I really wanted to figure out what really moved me what I really wanted to do for the next 30 40 years of my life and so I decided that the rest of 2013 I wasn't going to work you know, when am I going to get an opportunity to just just exist, just live, you know? And then it hit me that I was born in Ghana. I lived in Ghana for 10 years, went to school in Ghana. And really the most I knew about Ghana was Accra and my mother's hometown that I'd been to the, for, for the first time right before I moved for a family funeral, right? So I said, actually, what I'm going to do this year is travel Ghana. 
you know, it wasn't even a show idea. It was a personal thing for me that I wanted to just see my own country, just travel. I got in my car one day. I started close, went to Adan. Then I drove further Volta region about four hours away. Then I took a flight to Tamale. Then I went to my mother's hometown properly, Kumasi. And as I was doing that, it was a friend of mine who said, you should document this. Because everywhere I would go, I would tell people I was close to and they would have no idea. Like people who've lived in Ghana, oh, I went to Likbe in the Volta region. Where's that? And I realized wow, we don't know much about ourselves, you know? And I think culturally what I found is Ghanaians specifically, we don't travel unless it's for work or a funeral, you know? My mother would never get up and say, I'm going to Tamale to just go and see what's there. And so I felt like it was so important for us initially as Ghanaians to know our own space, Mm -hmm. right? If you know your own space, the good and the bad of it, no one can tell you anything about it that shakes you. Mm. You know, it's like being in a relationship. You know your man, you know his ugly side, you know his good side. If somebody comes and says, oh, you're a man, you know that you're like, okay, and <laughs> I still love him. <laughs> and you, boo. And you. <laughs> so that's how I felt. And I, and I keep telling people, like, now that I've been through Ghana, I realize how much my self-esteem is tied to knowing my country, right? Because it sets you, you know, it sets you when you know what you're dealing with in all its glory. I want you to expand a bit more about that. Now you said you know your Ghana, your self-esteem is tied to that, so it sets you. So talk about some of the things you discovered and saw that kind of introduced you to your own country in ways that you didn't know and then allowed you to then introduce us to elements of Ghana that I know I definitely didn't know. Yeah. I think for me, just being someone who's... I have a very clear awareness of my mental health just because of my family history. So I'm always looking for ways to have self-therapy, right? And just maintain balance in life. And that's how furniture designing actually started. It really was a way, an outlet for me to just be able to release everything that I was feeling or going through at the time. And when I went to Cape Three Points, which is about a five-hour drive outside of Accra, for me, I felt like I had met, and not to be so superfluous about it, but I felt like I had met God. Like that place to me is my perfect space. Wow. And... I remember the first time I went there, I kept saying, I can't believe this is in Ghana. And describe it for us. It's a beach town. It's supposed to be where like zero latitude meets zero latitude. So it's at the center point. It's the it's something I, I keep forgetting, but it's like the center point, the centermost point of the country. And I think the world, I keep confusing it with Tema because Tema also has some Greenwich Meridian center point. Um But it feels like you are literally connecting with yourself, with the divine, with God, with nature. There's not a lot there. It's almost untouched. You know, there's one man there who's created an eco-lodge. Besides him, there's nothing there. There's a bit of history. They have a lighthouse from the 1700s when Dutch were using as trading posts. But when you're there, you feel Like, this is the essence of life, right? This is the essence of, you you touch with the essence of who you are. And to connect that with the fact that this is not in some faraway fancy place that I've seen online or in a magazine. This is in my country where I was born, where my mother was born, where where my ancestors came from. 
there's just something about that that elevates you, Esther. You know, there's something about that that just elevates you as a human being, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think for me, it was from that point on that I really started to recognize that if I don't know the beauty in where I'm from, sometimes you forget the beauty in who you are. You know? Ooh, poetry in the spin this morning. <laughs> Mami Ajay, dropping verses, <laughs> dropping gems. That sounds like one of major highlights yeah. of your particular journey yeah. around Ghana. What else did you see that just struck you in ways that were surprising and really exciting? Yeah, you know, I always got the sense before in Ghana, I always I was assumed or, or wrongly stereotyped that we sort of didn't really care a lot about where we're from. Like somebody can be from the Volta region and have pride in that, but not really care that there's Willie Falls. That's an amazing attraction. But when I went to a place called Dick Bay in the Volta region, which is not far from Willie Falls, the tour guide, who's obviously a local, took me on this three-hour hike that I didn't expect. There are these caves in Likbe, where in the 1700s, about 15 people hid out for about five years. There was a war between the Volta region and the Ashantis, and people lived there. So that's their, Likbe, that's their sort of tourist attraction, these caves. And he took me on this three-hour hike to the top of this mountain, and looking down and seeing Volta region and further, for me, it was his enthusiasm in sharing that story with me you know it wasn't just like yeah let's go up the hill this is what happened like he talked about it as if he was talking about his family he connected me with it as if he was talking about his sisters his mother the pride with which he carried that story to me it struck me because I wasn't expecting that I was expecting him to say okay let's go you know pay your little five cities let's go here it is go inside okay bye and I love that. I love that, that somebody who's living in his space would share this story that is hundreds of years beyond him, past him, before him, with me as if it was of now and it was of essence that he told me about this, you know? Mm. And I think that's so important. If we're going to share our space, our country with people That's where it needs to come from. Like, it's passion. People think that tourism is just building buildings and hotels. And and no, tourism is really when you tap into the soul and the essence of a country. You know, that's tourism because that's why people want to come. You tap into that thing about that country, that emotional thing that moves people to say, I want to go there. You know, with Paris, it's love. You know, with Jamaica, it's beaches and relaxing and just sort of having peace. What is it for us? You know, and I don't think that we've really found that. What's so powerful listening to you is that it reminds me of how much that for us it is our stories. That our stories are stitched into the soil of this nation. Mm -hmm. And those stories are about beauty, brutality, Mm -hmm. blood Mm -hmm. and bravery. Mm -hmm. And there are ways in which Ghana is home spiritually and physically. Mm -hmm. And so I think what I love about what you're doing is that you're really reimagining tourism Mm. from this traditional notion of, you know, a physical attraction, a hotel, a geographical building. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that actually our stories and those who hold those stories are part of how we should experience our country. Mm -hmm. And I think that that also then creates opportunities within Ghana Mm -hmm. and for Ghanaians to reimagine their own nation 
and reconnect to it in ways that we are actually not connected. And I also think about the notion of, of course, there are governments, both this and previous ones, who have very linear notions of tourism. Mm -hmm. And I think that what you're doing is offering both Ghanaians and then also the diaspora Mm -hmm. to reimagine what that can be Mm -hmm. and therefore journey beyond whatever we're told are the quote-unquote tourist attractions of a particular nation. So out of all of this, you created Girl Going Places, which is a web show. During the first season, talk a bit about how that came about, some of the challenges you had and what you discovered along the way. At the time I was doing Girl Going Places, Girl Going Places was even started before an African city. So I had no production experience. No, like I, I, I knew nothing, zero. And so my friend who had suggested that I turn it into a show was extremely, actually, he actually gave me the name. I went through a couple names and he was like, no, girl going places, you know. So shout out to Mens for that. And he was in music and in film. So I remember the first thing we did is we went to NAFTI, which is the film school in Accra, to find a young kid that could shoot. And we found this great kid. And the first episode we did was in Adan because it was close. Because I'd never sort of been in production. I just wanted to start with something simple and see. So we went to Adar with this young kid, Alex. And we, tell us what you found in Adar. Where is Adar and what, what did so you So Adar is about an hour and a half from Accra. It's kind of like the beach getaway, I would say, for the upwardly mobile in Accra. And so I had been there as a child but all I knew was sort of the resort side of it, right? You go to Adal, go to Aqua Safari, get on a jet ski, eat some seafood. But I really wanted to explore what the town itself was, you know, what Adal had been. And there was so much history about Adal that I had no idea. And if I wasn't doing the show, I would never know. There's a burial site by the beach, which is now being eroded, of all these Dutch missionaries and traders who had come to Adar, and Adar was a huge trading port back in the day, and they're all buried there, you know, 1600s, 1700s. So this is enslavement time, right? Enslavement time, right? I had no idea. Obviously, it's a fishing town, but they have a really intricate history with themselves. You know, there's a couple of islands in Adar. We had to take a boat to an island where they said that there was a crocodile reservoir, and when we got there, there is a crocodile reservoir, but there's also a chief. And to be able to see those crocodiles who are considered gods, you have to go through the chief. You have to buy some schnapps if you want to sort of even see these crocodiles. And I love that, you know. Initially, it was like, really? do I? Have? But it's like, that's the culture. These are the systems that are built into the fabric of who we are. And so you have to pay attention and follow them. So for me, it was really finding out what laid inside this space that has now become a weekend vacation destination. And this place that I was familiar with in a very different way. So yeah, Da was, uh, was the first foray. And after that, it was just about really picking things off the internet. That's how I did my research. Okay, what's in the Volta region? Okay, I see they're talking about this place called Likpe. Never heard of it. Never. Okay. Got my little Google Maps, drove there myself with three other people, and we figured it out. It really was. I really wanted Girl Going Places to feel like you were coming on this journey of exploration with me. And that's what it was. So I love this idea of a journey, and that's how I felt when I watched it. I felt like I was on a road trip. Mm. I was on a virtual road trip. And I was getting to discover elements of my country that I have lived in now. I mean, I've been in and out of it for several, several years. But I also moved back and I've been living here in Accra for three and a half, four years and did not have any idea of the places that you took me to. 
And I loved the introduction. I loved the kind of focus on there was food, mm. culture, ritual, and things that were specific to that particular region or that particular space. Yeah. And when you're talking about the chief, I think about the notion of ritual mattering for us, for Ghana and for our culture. And that I kind of think that we think about selling Ghana to white people. And because that's how we imagine tourism, we then think we have to package our nation according to what other touristic places offer. Yes. So that's why the Six Star Hotel you know, right. matters to the extent that it right. matters. Right. And that actually, as long as you do that, there's an entire population yeah. that you've ignored, Completely. especially because Ghana is the first African nation to acquire independence in 1957, but also that we're one of the places from which enslaved Africans were taken to the Caribbean, to Brazil, yeah. to the Americas, yeah. and that there is a homecoming, yes. there's a homegoing yes. that has all this rich yes. tradition and culture yes. and ritual and emotionality yes. that should be part of our story of how we talk about our nation to the world. Absolutely. And I feel that it's, it's just overlooked. So we have a very economic relationship with the diaspora from Ghana. Mm -hmm. We have this notion of, okay, come, we need you to come home and build. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Come and invest. Come and invest. Yes. Be a business person, yes. be an entrepreneur, yes. be an investor, yes. help the economy build. Yes. But there's not, and this is what I love about Girl Going Places, it's reminding us, it's saying to me as a viewer, let me introduce you to my Ghana. Exactly. Come see these places that yes. I can experience and that you can therefore vicariously experience with me mm -hmm. and get a much deeper appreciation of this land that we call Ghana mm -hmm. and its people and its culture mm -hmm. and its rituals. Mm -hmm. What kinds of responses did you get to girl-going places? And do you feel the message has gone as far as you would like it to go? I mean, the responses about the show have been... They blow me away, you know, and if I get emotional, don't <laughs> don't judge me because, you know, Girl Gang Places is really a passion project. You know, it's very personal to me and it really was about me exploring myself in my own space and my country. You know, like I have deep love for Ghana and when you love something, you want to know everything about it. And so for other people to connect with that and see that and want to explore it even more, that's, that's, that's it. Like, that's the gift for me as a creator, you know, as a producer. If I've been able to create a piece of work that has encouraged, inspired, moved anyone to want to explore themselves and explore this space that I love so much, then I feel like I've done my job. You know, so the comments and and the support and for people who've actually seen the show, especially Ghanaians who have said to me, what? Like, I never knew, mm -hmm. you know, or people like I know at least three people who actually went to Likpe because they saw that episode, like goosebumps, you know. So the response has been amazing. I wish, you know, the, the goal is for this show to go as far as it can for as many eyeballs to get on it. Because I think it really, for me, it's really about positioning Ghana 
as such a dynamic country, such a dynamic space, you know, full of history, culture, like everything, you know. So many things lay under the fabric of Accra, of the modernity of, of an African city. <laughs> and that's what I want people to know. Mm. You know, that's what I want us as Ghanaians to know. That's what I want people in the diaspora to know. You know, and you said something about, you know, sort of missing this opportunity especially being a country that saw so many enslaved people sent across the world, we're missing this opportunity for all those people to connect back to us. We should tap into that, you know, because we carry the histories of so many millions of people all across the globe. Why are we not making sure that that is part of our story? Mm -hmm. You know, that is really our tourism push because that is our uniqueness. That is our heart. That's the center of us, that we are this country on the western coast of Africa that saw so many of our people just transitioned into the world. And really, they can come back and experience a piece of themselves that they have never experienced. What I love about what you're saying is I think this is the personification of leadership within this reimagining of tourism. Yeah. That Ghana is, has always been and is more than 10 regions within a nation. It is more than the GDP of the economy. It is more than the, uh, the six-star hotels. But for those millions who were stolen and who have a desire and the means to return... Yeah. How they return matters. It does. Because when the taking was so brutal, yeah. the re-entry needs love and care Absolutely. and thoughts Ab and a wrapping. Absolutely. Um, and a recognition that the return is a particular journey yeah. of stories, multiple yeah. stories. Yeah. And everybody's return is not the same. Yeah. The experience of, of a homecoming is not the same. And so I love that in this industry where we think of tourism specifically in Ghana in these very linear, mm -hmm. particular ways. You're offering us this opportunity through the world of technology and social media and the digital world to introduce us to all these corners and nooks and crannies that carry all this story and all this beauty, but are right here. Yeah. And that the stories are carried in the hearts and souls and minds of people. Yeah. And what do we lose when we don't make those journeys to extract those stories and yeah. have those experiences? What might we gain if we did? Yeah. What might we gain if Girl Going Places becomes a global project yeah. that allows this experience of Ghana to be had by millions of people, people in all different yeah. ways? Absolutely, I can imagine there are places that I want to go yeah. just because I watched Girl Going Places. <laughs> right. And I think seeing a nation through the lens of somebody who loves it yeah. is very different than being sold a package of the reason you should come and travel. Mm -hmm. And it is always deeper when someone is introducing you to the love of their life via a nation. Mm -hmm. Your experience of it will always be different. Mm -hmm. And we are ignoring a massive population that already has connection and passion, mm -hmm. but needs to be given direction as, as to how to come mm -hmm. through. Like re-entry needs care. Mm -hmm. That's what I would mm -hmm. definitely say. So let's create a global crystal ball <laughs> and creatively visualize yourself what girl-going places can be and do for daughters and sons of the diaspora across the world who are listening to us. 
Oh, wow. For me, it would almost be like the entry point to like the doorway into into walking into home, right? So that's where when you get there, you clean your shoes. If you have any questions about the etiquette inside the house, can I talk loud? Is someone sleeping? It would be the entry point, the doorway, you know, because the the, the hope would be you, you would have seen me on the show. You would have seen my journey through the show. You would have seen me growing through the show, me exploring with the show and realize that it's possible, you know, and realize that there might be hurdles, there might be challenges, but realize at the end what you get from it, you know, and want to also make that journey. For me, it would be just being a portal, being a portal for all those people who've had all sorts of fears about the continent, all sorts of fears about coming to Africa. Oh, you know, Africa, I don't know about Africa. <laughs> I heard Africa, you know, and just being able to sort of reassure people that, Yes, it's different from what your existence has been for how however long you've been on this earth, but it's a journey that's necessary, you know? And I think that we haven't done that well. And I think a lot of times we dismiss people's fears, you know? And I think their fears are valid based on the information that, that they've been given for decades and decades and decades about this continent. Your fears are, are, are valid. But the only way to get over your fears or to see that your fears might not be based rooted in truth is to actually experience that thing. So for me, Girl Going Places would be a portal, a portal for people to recognize that actually to be able to see myself, to be able to really see myself and really understand who I am, this is a journey that I have to make. And I have somebody to walk me through it. Or somebody has already walked those footsteps for me and has has shown me that it's okay. Not only it's okay, but has has shown me what I can receive for myself internally at the end of that journey. I'm a Ghanaian. I was born in Ghana. I can speak my language, all that. And I still every day discover something about this country that moves me, you know, to a higher point of self. So I can't imagine what somebody who has no connection to Ghana, but is of the diaspora, is black and knows that their great, great, great grandfather could have been from this land. I can't imagine what they would recognize in themselves if they took that journey, you know, but I think it's up to us as Ghanaians to facilitate that. You know, I don't think we can just throw up our hands and say, just come. It's not that easy to have that confidence to be able to travel to this far land and really feel like you're going to connect with yourself. It's for us, just like you're saying, to sort of create the bed, you know, make it nice and fluffy. Like, that's our job. And I don't think that we've recognized that that's our job. You know, we see it as our job when we when we think that that's going to bring in revenue. But that's not where you start. Mm -hmm. You start with the emotional. You start with the truth. You start with the authenticity. Of course, if someone's coming to Ghana, they have to spend money and all that. That's the back end benefit. But you can't start by saying come so that you can spend your dollars and that's going to boost the economy. No. What are you giving that person? What are you giving that person that's going to be a true, authentic incentive for them to come and be in this space? And we're not doing that. Tourism can even be a slice of emotional justice. It's called Girl Going Places. I want to hear myself. 
So that's your hour. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, a.k.a. McKeever Magic, and distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Thank you, Mami. Thank you, Esther. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. This is Living Legacy, a series of conversations and discussions as part of our African Woman Day discussion and celebration. The Spin, your hour of global talk, where smart is sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. People owe me intellectual property, stealing This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.